Take your Bibles and we're going to turn to the book of Daniel and chapter number five and the passage of scripture that was read. One of the reasons why we do come to church is because of the great day approaching. And we're going to really be talking about that day personally in our lives. That day we're going to stand before the Lord and meet him. And we need to be ready for that day of all other days in our lives. Just as we begin today, let's just go to Daniel. And we're going to read in chapter 5. And let's just read verse 27 together. Just that one verse. Daniel 5:27. Tico, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Now, Lord, we pray that you would use this time to challenge us, prepare our hearts, Lord, to see you, to see what you would have us to be and how you would so have us to live. Would you have mercy on our nation, Lord, that was born in revival and in the midst of the years you gave us a revival, even before the great civil war, there was a revival in our land. And, Lord, if there's ever a time for revival, it is now. For, Lord, we are wanting, and our kingdom, just as the days of Belshazzar, it's it's uh, could be broken up. We don't know, Lord, but we know that you rule in the kingdom of men. So we just trust you, God, that you will show your mighty hand in our lives, that we would live out love, the love of Jesus Christ to all those around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in around 1739 to about 1740, George Whitfield went throughout New England, coming coming from England. He was a great evangelist, and he preached revival. And that started really a great awakening in the northern colonies of the fledgling, this nation that hadn't even had its birth yet. Then a a year or so after that, Jonathan Edwards went down to Enfield, Connecticut. It was July 8th, 1741. Now, remember, the nation had experienced revival. We weren't a nation yet, but you understand what I'm saying. Had experienced revival. It was revival happening. But Edwards went and preached what has been called the most famous sermon in American church history. You've heard of it. You've maybe even read it when you were in high school. Sinners in the Hands. Of an angry God. How many of you have read that sermon like in school? His text was from Deuteronomy 32 verse 5. Where God says to me vengeance belongeth. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things that shall come upon them make haste. Their foot shall slide in due time. Was the main part of his text. From that passage in Deuteronomy. Upon which he he called this sermon Sinners in the hands of an angry God. As he spoke, many people say that, that, that Edwards was not an eloquent speaker. He was not, uh, you know, loud in his way at all. He would, he would hold the pulpit and he would talk in some kind of a monotone voice. And he would read much of his sermon. But this sermon so gripped the people that he didn't finish it that day. And again, it was revival going on. And he preached on judgment. He preached on hell. He preached on salvation. And people started crying out for God to have mercy. 
And notice some of the language, what he uses, such picturesque language. The bow of God's wrath is bent. Now I want you to picture the bow of his wrath is bent. And the arrow is made ready on the string. He's about to let it go. But wait, where is it pointed? Justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. The bow is strained. The bow is pointed. It's aimed at your heart. And the people cried out, oh, woe is me. And Edward says, there's nothing but the mere pleasure of God that it who is an angry God without any promise or obligations at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk in your own blood. And so he went on as he preached and he used tremendous imagery, vivid pictures of hell as a lake of fire, a bottomless pit, a violent windstorm, a tidal wave of destruction, and he talked about a spider dangling over a flame. And it wasn't anything but the mere pleasure of God that would keep that spider from falling into the pit. Or a heavy lead weight sliding down into a bottomless gulf. And Edward preached how God was incensed at the wickedness, at the rebellion of people against him. And this is what he said. And I reread his sermon yesterday. And this really moved me when Edward said this to the congregation that July day, 1741. He said, God is more angry with many that are right now in this congregation than he is with many who are now in hell. That struck me. But yes, the Bible says those who are without Christ, they are already under the condemnation of God. And that's why he said God is more angry with many who are still alive, just as angry. Don't think if you're not saved, you must not be saved today. Do not think if you're not saved that you're pleasing God. You're not. God is angry. He wants people to be saved. And as I was preparing my coffee this week, standing at my coffee maker, I get sermon ideas all over the place. <laughs> and I got my sermon idea as I was making coffee. Literally, I was, and I was, because, you know, when you study the Bible, you meditate on it. And it's just with you all the time, right? And so I was, as, as I was making my coffee, I thought about Belshazzar being weighed by God. And then somehow I thought of this sermon by Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And I thought, yes, Belshazzar is a sinner on the scale of an angry God. And all of us are going to face this great day of judgment. We're going to be on the scales and God is going to weigh your life. He's going to weigh my life. All of us will be judged individually by God. We cannot escape that day. All of us are alike in this way. How will you fare in his day of judgment when you stand on his scale? Well, this passage, of course, we've been preaching on it. This is the third message we've done from Daniel chapter 5. We, we talked about the massive feast that Belshazzar held. And massive feasts were common in the ancient world. They were things of legend. 
even in the Bible, in the book of Esther, Ahasuerus, the, the king of the Persian Empire, held the feast. Didn't it last for a, a whole year or something like that? I mean, so that, so massive feasts were common. So the kingdom is tottering on the edge. So what does Belshazzar do? As a show of power, he gathers together a thousand lords, and they have this incredible pagan, idolatrous, wicked, blasphemous feast, mocking God. Some believe that this dining room could have been up to a mile long and 1,600 feet wide with 4,500 pillars with giant elephants carved of stone in these pillars. And there in the midst of this massive feast with partying and revelry, God breaks through from eternity and, and comes into time. And God, that's what God does. Isn't it amazing that our God of eternity breaks through into time? And that's what he does in our lives as well. He comes to our, our life. He comes to where we live. And he came to where Belshazzar lived that day. And you know, he writes on the walls. Uncontrollable trembling takes hold of Belshazzar. His knees knock. His legs go limp. His inner being is loosed. A message of doom, but he doesn't know what it says. Daniel is called. Daniel gave him a history lesson about his grandfather, and that was our last message where we talked about Daniel, the man of God, without compromise, stood and proclaimed to Belshazzar. He should have repented. He should have humbled himself, but he didn't. And now he reads the writing on the wall. This is what Belshazzar has called Daniel in to do. What does this writing on the wall mean? Meanie, meanie, tickle, you farsin. And... Some have said that the letters, if you were to put them in our language, because they didn't have vowels in the, that writing on the wall, if it was Hebrew anyway, could have looked something like this. Meany, meany, tickle you farsin, was this handwriting on the wall. And so this morning we want to see in this brief message, these three words of God on the wall. It shows how Belshazzar is a sinner. And he's going to stand on the scale of an angry God. And we must understand what this handwriting means and then apply it to ourselves because we too will stand before God one day. So let's understand what the writing means and how to apply this to our own lives today. The first thing we see, actually, let me give you all three things this morning. Meaning, meaning, meaning means your time is up. Tico means you do not measure up. Your time is up. You do not measure up. And you farce in your kingdom is broken up. Meaning, meaning. God hath numbered your kingdom, Daniel says, and has finished it. Your number's up. Time is over. Your time has come. You're finished. No more opportunities. No second chances. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Oh, Belshazzar, you're like the rich fool of the New Testament. Remember that rich fool? He says, I'm going to tear down this barn and what am I going to do? I'm going to build bigger ones. He had all kinds of plans, but God said, you fool, this night your soul 
will be required of you. And like so many of us, we have plans. But Belshazzar, God says, you'll have no time for your plans. Your time is up. When it comes to time, you think you have more time than you have. Death takes many people by surprise, doesn't it? Even though we're all going to die, when we hear even some people die, we say, wow, I can't believe they died. Right? But really, we should believe when someone dies. Because God never promises a long life. He always says life is what? Short. That's what we know about life. What is your life? James defines life. It is even as a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Here's a good definition of life in the Bible. You know what life is? Sum it all down. It's a little time. That's what our life is. A little time. That's all you have. And don't think you have any more. Your time is up. You know, sometimes we're just waiting for something to happen, right? Life is full of waiting. You ever go to the deli counter and you're going to order some nice sliced roast beef and you're going you're gonna to get the nice fresh hero bread and you're going to put the mayo on that bread and you're going to put some little tomato on the bread and you're going to put some onions there and a little oil and vinegar, salt and pepper, but you need the roast beef. So you got to go to the deli counter and they say, get a number, right? Do you ever get a number at the, at the roast beef counter? So you get the number at the roast beef counter and you're waiting for your roast beef because you want that sandwich. Your mouth is watering. Oh, you got the pickles too and the coleslaw or the potato salad. And But you're waiting. You got the number and you're waiting. And then they say, number 27. Oh, that's my number. My time has come. Your number's been called. And in that sense, Belshazzar's number has been called. His time is up. And one day, your number will be called. Your time will be up. It is appointed once to man. To what? To die. Once to die. We don't get a second chance at this thing called life with just a little time. So that's why we have to redeem the time. Use up your time. Be wise with your time. Because life is just a little time and we're going to die once. And after this, after this is the what? The judgment. We're going to stand on the scale. It is appointed unto man. Appointed? You know what that word appointment? You know what appointment is. You have an appointment with the doctor. I don't know whether, some people are always on time for their appointments, and some people are always late for their appointments. Now, I don't know why that is, but it seems when somebody's on time for their appointments, that's just the way they are. They're on time. And other people, when they're late for their appointments, that's just the way it is, too. They're always late. I don't know whether you're the person on time or you're the person late, but I'll tell you one appointment. You won't miss. You'll be right on time. It's the day of your death. You will die at an appointed time. God knows it. We need to trust him. Life is brief. Go to Psalm, please, 90. And as we consider these three words, I want us to consider another song in contrast to the Daniel passage. And the first song we want to consider is Psalm 90. Who wrote this song? You, you know who wrote it. This was a song of Moses. And, many, and we, we memorized Psalm 91, which was also... A parallel, and, and Moses, they say, did write Psalm 90 and, and 91, and he wrote it, 
And throughout this Psalm 90, we see the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel. And this song, we see, we can almost picture the the glory cloud of God rising up. And then the people, when the glory cloud of God would rise up, they would have to pack up the tabernacle and pack up their tents and put their sleeping bags on. Come on, kids, let's go. Put your socks in your suitcase. We got to go. The glory cloud of God. And then they would go. And you know what they would leave behind? A trail of bones dead in the sand. People dying always in the wilderness wandering, right? from snakes and from complaining and from the wrath and the judgment of God. And that's what Moses tells us about. And even though they had experienced so much pain and sorrow and death in this wilderness, Moses begins this psalm and says, Lord, Adonai, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Verse 4, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but verse 4 of Psalm 90 says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Peter grabbed onto those words, didn't he, when he says a thousand years as this one day. In other words, God is eternal, and a thousand years is nothing to God. Life is brief. No, nobody, how, how many people you know live a thousand years? Nobody can come close to a thousand years. Somebody lives to 105, and we say, wow, how they were so old. No, life was brief. After 105 years in light of eternity, it's just a blink of an eye, just a grain of sand in time. He says, carried away as with a flood in verse 5. We're like grass which grows up in the morning, it flourishes, and then boom, it's cut down in the evening. Well, just a day, that's it. Morning to evening, boom, cut down. That's what our life is like. Verse 7, he says, we're consumed by thine anger. By thy wrath, we are troubled. God sees all our sins, even our secret sins in the light of his countenance, verse 8. Nothing gets away from the all-seeing eye of God. All our days, verse 9, are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. You know what our life is like there? He said, you know what your life is? It's just a short story. Could summarize a short story very quickly. A tale that is told, a short story. The days of our life are, are three score and ten, just seventy. A thousand years is nothing to God. Our life is like seventy. Yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow. It is soon cut off, and we fly away. Who knows the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. I have underlined in my Bible, in verse 7, the words anger and wrath. In verse 9, again, the word wrath. In verse 11, we come again with verse 11, uh, anger and wrath. We're going to stand on the scale of this God who is a God of anger and wrath. So what's the lesson? Verse 12. Can we all read that verse together? Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Our days are numbered. Number your days. You're going to only live a certain number. So will I, right? Number your days. One, two, three. Number them. Count them. In other words, don't, don't skip one. Use everyone. Everyone is important. Rejoice in everyone. Serve God in everyone. 
Number your days. Use everyone for him. God has numbered your days. So teach us to number our days. God has numbered them. So we should number them. That's what he says. That we may apply our hearts to what? Wisdom. Get wisdom for all of your days. Because we're on the brink of eternity. You may not even know it. Belshazzar begins chapter 5. We're having a party, man. He was in the, a place of power. He felt so secure. Even though there was danger outside, he was living in denial. We did a message on that. By the end of this chapter, he's dead. He didn't know that's the way his chapter was going to end. His life is just the tale that is told. One chapter, boom, he's alive, and now he's dead. We also are on the brink of eternity. And God's anger can burst forth like a flood any time and cut us down like the grass. So that's the first word, meaning, meaning, emphasize, because you know what? People think they have more time than they have. You ever have a, you have a schedule? You have an appointment? Oh, I got to go there. But before I go there, I, I got to do this. And I know I have enough time, right? Oh, I know I know I have enough time to do this before I go there to meet that appointment. But then you start doing this, and then you get run in late. Have, does that ever happen to you? Come on now. It's happened to me, so please make me feel better about myself. No. <laughs> so we think we have more time than we have. But life is short. The second thing is Kiko. So he says, meaning twice to emphasize life's brevity. The other words he just says once, Kiko, which is, thou art weighed in the balances and you're found wanting. Weighed is the main word here. You do not measure up. You do not measure up. You're too light. In this weighing before God, this is now, ladies, I have good news for you. When you get weighed on this scale, he wants you heavy. Okay? He wants you heavy. Don't worry about losing weight. He says, you've been weighed in the balances and you're found wanting. In other words, too light. What's the point? God is a God of glory, of in amazing weightiness and brightness. So the, the idea of God's glory, one of the ideas, it's brightness and the other could be his weightiness. God is a heavyweight God. He's heavy in love. His, his love isn't light. Amen? His glory isn't light. He's heavy in glory, heavy in mercy, heavy in grace, heavy in love. God is a heavyweight God. And God says, Belshazzar, you're a lightweight. You don't measure up. You don't budge the scale. So, two things here about the weighing. And there is a weighing time for us all. Romans 14, 12 says, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. And God will weigh us. He will judge me and he will judge you individually, impartially, thoroughly, accurately, perfectly, righteously. He will judge all of us. And there's no escape. And in fact, God, God judges us now. Before Belshazzar even died, God had judged him. Before he got on the scale. He says, you're, you don't even have to get on the scale. I know how much you weigh. You're a lightweight. You don't measure up. 
So in the weighing, who's the judge? Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Jesus said in John 5.22, the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. What's the standard of his judgment? His character and his word. John 12.28, Jesus says, the word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. The word of God will judge us. And we will be judged by Jesus Christ himself according to his righteousness and his standards. And in this judgment, we will be weighed for what we really are, not according to what man thinks us to be. Now, one of the, I don't know exactly how to say this, one of the dangers of being a pastor is people think you're one thing and you're not that at all. Because they say, oh, you're a pastor, you know, oh, you pastors are are weak as anybody else. We see him fall as well. And pastors need prayer, just like everyone of us need prayer. But God isn't going to judge me as a, uh, as, as a pastor, somebody more holy than you know. He's going to judge all of us equally and impartially. He will judge us for what we really are, not as what others think we are. We're ready to deceive ourselves, but we're not going to be judged according to what we see ourselves to be, but as he really knows us to be. How will it be up for you on that great day? The story is told of a banker, and this banker was getting to retire, so he was going to give his business over to his son. And so he said, son, now there's a large iron safe. You know that in the basement. Here's the key for that safe. And so he gave him the key to the safe. But he says, never open this safe until or unless there's a tremendous run on the bank or some kind of tremendous financial collapse. Then and only then are you to open the safe. So things went well for a while, but then there was a financial collapse and and everybody made their run to the bank and they wanted to get their money out. He didn't know what to do. He said, there's only one thing left and that's, I got the key. I'm going to open, I'm going to open the safe. So he went to the safe with great anticipation and he opened it and it was empty. Not a thing in it. It was all a show and a sham. The poverty of the bank was kept a secret. The wealth of the bank. It was an illusion. And a lot of people so lived their lives. Outwardly, people seem like, oh, everything's fine. But inwardly, they're lightweight. They're empty. This is the greatest day of our lives. Now, there's certain days that you remember more than other days. I'm looking at some of you. I've enjoyed your wonderful day of marriage together. That's a big day in our lives, don't you think? A little bit of preparation goes into that day. Just a little. A little thought and time, especially the the ladies, our, our wives, just love to prepare. Oh, something about a wedding day. You know, it's the day you long for and dream for. And so every day, every moment of the day is planned out so carefully. Oh, at at 10 o'clock, we're going to get our nails done. And at 10.30, we're going to do the hair. And, of course, the guy, he just gets dressed five minutes. He's like, let's go, you know. I was only worried when I was getting married that my knees were not going to knock together and I was, was going to faint. I was afraid I was going to, like, fall over and faint when I, when, before I could say my vows. But, you know, all the preparations. I remember going to Lupone's 
Remember Lou Pones? Of course, my wife remembers Lou Pones right in the middle of Clinton, Connecticut. That's where we got our tuxedos, you know, and we had to get all the measurements and we got all, you know, send out the invitations and then you got to prepare for the, the wedding and the reception. And you, the ladies, of course, I can't forget their dress. And then the, the, the honeymoon and all the, all the, all the preparations, all the things we do to prepare for that day. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. But there's a greater day for all of us when we see the Lord. Do you prepare for that day? We, we, just like you get ready for a wedding, even more get ready to see Jesus Christ and stand on the scale and be weighed with your life. Will you be found like Belshazzar, wanting? All the ways of man are clean in his own eyes, but the Lord weigheth the spirits. He knows what we really are, who we really are. Then there's the wanting. Belshazzar was weighed and he was found too light, too deficient. So throughout this chapter, we see Belshazzar's epic, arrogant pride, don't we? He gives God no credit and no glory. He's getting drunk. He's, there's wicked immorality. There's gross idolatry. They're drinking out of the special vessels of the Lord of silver and gold and getting drunk in them. And even when it came to Daniel, they, they didn't give God the glory for Daniel having so much wisdom. They say, oh, the spirit of the holy gods, the spirit of our gods is in Daniel who helped him interpret these dreams of the, they didn't give, God gives no glory from anything from Belshazzar's life. He gives no credit to God. So it's his time to stand on the scale. What will it be like? I want us to go to Psalm 62, please. In Psalm 62, this is a Psalm of David. Now we considered a Psalm of Moses in the wilderness. This is a Psalm of David. Many people believe this Psalm was written when Absalom was rebelling against David and his kingdom. And so Absalom is kind of the villain, the 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 mischievous man, the tottering fence of verse 3, as David is writing, and he's talking about how only God is his hope, his strength, his rock, and he's waiting on God to deliver him out of this mess of Absalom's rebellion. And so I want to just pick up the reading in verse 6 and read down to verse 10 of Psalm 62. And verse 6, he says, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Notice that. He's my glory. He's my salvation. He's my refuge. That's a beautiful verse. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I've used that to counsel people many times through the years because so, so many times people have so much stuff in them, so much worry, so much fear, so much anger, so much bitterness, so much stuff, and it's all swirling around in their heart. What are you supposed to do with all that stuff in there that's creating so much anger and bitterness and, and, and contempt for life? Just pour it out to God. That's why we need God, right? We need to just go before the Lord and pour it, to, and God can handle it. Nothing you pour on God is going to surprise him. 
nothing you pour on God, he's going to say, no, I don't want you to say that. Anything you want to say before God, you could say. Pour out your heart before him, he says. God is a refuge for us. But the proud wouldn't do it. Surely men of low degree are vanity. Men of high degree are a lie. Low or high, high degree people of power, low degree, maybe that's talking about people who are unknowns of the, of the world. But here Belshazzar was a man of high degree, a king. But you put Belshazzar in the balance and he's altogether lighter than vanity. Now, when we think of a scale or weighing, we often think of just getting on a scale and it tells you how many pounds. But that's not the biblical picture of a scale. The biblical picture of a scale is what I have pictured here. It's two sides. So, in other words, like if you were going to go to a merchant and buy 50 pounds of wheat, the merchant would have a 50-pound weight and he would put it on one side of the scale. And then if you were to get the 50 pounds of wheat, he would put wheat on the other side of the scale until the scale was what? Balanced, and then you would know you had 50 pounds of wheat based on the 50-pound weight on the other side. And by the way, that's why God often says in the Bible to have just weights, equal weights. In other words, if you're going to sell somebody 50 pounds of wheat, don't have a don't have a 45-pound weight, don't have false weights there. That's lying and cheating in your business. But anyway, so here's the thing: when we think about standing before God, now listen to me carefully. We know this in talking to people many times. Many people have the idea, okay, I've got the scale here. In order for me to go to get to heaven, what do most people think? I'm going to put what on one side? My good works. And in order for me to get to heaven, what has to happen? My good works have, because I know I've done bad things, so we've got to put bad things down on the other side of the scale. And if I'm going to make it before God, if he's going to accept me, what's, what's got to be? The good has to outweigh the bad, then I'm okay. But that's not the scale. He says here, Belshazzar, and here, these men of high degree, when they're laid in the balance, they're lighter than vanity. And here he says, you are weighed in the balances and you are found wanting. That is the light. You are deficient. You don't move the scale. My question is, what is the basis? Is he being, what, what is the basis of which he's being weighed by? What's on the other side of the scale that he's so light he's not budging? It's not his good works. It's God's glory. It's God's righteousness. You see, we're not going to be judged whether our good outweigh our bad. When a man stands before God, He's going to be judged according to his life versus the perfect righteousness and life of Jesus Christ. In other words, put the righteousness of Jesus Christ on one side of the scale. And then, of yourself, put your righteousness on the other side. What are you? Lighter than vanity. So am I. Put the love of Jesus Christ on one side and it goes down fast because his love is so great. Put your love on the other side. Just the love that comes out of your own heart, our hearts that are depraved and sinful. It doesn't budge. We're lighter than vanity. 
Put God's holiness on one side. Put God's mercy and then put your holiness and mercy, whatever, on the other side. We're lighter than vanity. None of us measure up. Belshazzar did it. Neither do we. What is our hope? How do we measure up? How do we measure up? How can we budge the scale? When we stand on the scale, it has to equal. We have to, we have to get on this scale and we have to get it equal. We have to move the scale so that we're equal to God's holiness and righteousness and love and mercy. How can we do that? Through the gospel. Amen. That's the good news of the gospel. As we stand before God at the judgment seat and we bring the full weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ with us, we bring the full atonement of Jesus, we bring his perfect satisfactory work for us on the cross, we bring with us his precious blood, we bring with us his perfect righteousness, we bring with us his infinite love, we bring with us his boundless mercy, and we stand on that scale, we move the scale by the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Hallelujah for the cross. The only way to stand before God is by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone who believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Are you saved? You must be born again. You know, and Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, at a time where most people probably would have thought everyone else was saved. But many weren't. And many of you have heard the gospel, but I don't know your heart. God does. Make sure you're born again. Because God will see your heart and he'll see my heart. And it doesn't matter what you appear to be to me. It matters who you are before God on that great day. Will you be wanting? And lastly, the kingdom is broken up. God can break up man's kingdoms in a moment. And he did with this mighty kingdom of Babylon, this head of gold, and he's turning it over. It says here to the Medes and the Persians, your kingdom is divided. Meany, meany, your time is up. Tico, you don't measure up, you force in. Your kingdom is broken up. Your kingdom is divided, given to the Medes and the Persians. <coughs> What's very interesting about this is that the Persian part of this empire actually became more powerful later on than the Median part. But in, in its beginning stage, the Median part had more power in some ways than the Persians. So it's the Medes is put before the Persians, but later the Persians are put before the Medes. So that's a strong evidence that Daniel did write this, which so-called liberal scholars deny. Another thing I just wanted to say about this, and this kind of baffled me a little bit, so I tried to find a good answer to this, is the writing on the wall in verse 25, what was the third word? It was euphorsin. But then when Daniel gives the interpretation in verse 28, he says what? Perez. Sounds like a Spanish guy, right? Perez. So I was like wondering, why does he change from Eupharsin to Perez? And so, but it's, the answer I found 
was really a simple answer is that the you in Eupharsin is a conjunction and. So in other words, the you he adds is and divided. So that the you is an and, and Eupharsin is a plural form of the now of the word Perez, which is the singular. So that's why Eupharsin is used versus Perez in verse 25. Just has the conjunction and it's pluralized. So that was it. That's pretty simple, right? Did that ever baffle you? Yeah, okay. As we close, I want us to go to 1 Samuel, please, chapter number 2. So we considered, in contrast to these verses, the Song of Moses, then the Song of David. And I want us to close with the Song of Hannah in 1 Samuel, chapter 2. And Belshazzar was lighter than dust when brought to the judgment before God. He was a lightweight. He had significance in the world, but he was a lightweight before God. But here was a woman who had no power in the eyes of the world. She was a lightweight to the eyes of, of people in the world. But she was a heavyweight before God. Hannah was a heavyweight. Her prayers were weighty like Gold when she went before the Lord as she prayed in faith. God weighed her tears, and her tears tilted the scale of God's weight of mercy and grace. And you put her sorrowful spirit on the scale, and it moved the scale in God's presence. Hannah was a true heavyweight for God. And here she prayed in thanks to the Lord for giving her a son. And she said in verse 1, she said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. My, whole, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies because I rejoice in thy salvation. There it is. She had true salvation. There is none holy as the Lord. She knew God was holy. And there was none like him. And her holiness and righteousness was in him and him alone. There is none beside thee. There is, neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more exceeding proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. She was the anti-Belshazzar. Belshazzar was nothing but pride and arrogancy. And Hannah is like, I can't say anything in pride against God. Wow. And she says, God is a God of knowledge. He knows me inside and out. And by him, actions are weighed. Actions are weighed. So I wanted to say this to us as believers as we close. We're going to be judged. Our judgment as believers will not be whether we're saved or lost. That's settled at the cross. Our judgment as believers will not be over our sins. Jesus died for our sins. But we will be judged according to our works that we have done in the flesh, whether good or bad. I believe the motive of our work will come under the careful scrutiny of God. We will be judged at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And there's three great questions that we could ask as we close this morning. And ask yourself these. Weigh your actions in these three ways. Number one, are they for the glory of God? And please read with me this verse. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. That's a good thing to ask. Is what I'm doing 
making great the name of Jesus Christ, magnifying, elevating. Am I doing this giving thanks to God through him? Are my works for the glory of God? Second, are they in the will of God? Now, I love this verse. You know, I like it. Because here was this mighty man, David. You know, there's chapters in the Bible written about him. But his whole life is summarized literally down to one sentence. And you know, that's about what our life is going to be at the end. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Maybe you'll come to my funeral one day. If you're around, you're invited. But if you come to my funeral, I know you're going to come and you say, Oh, Pastor Ricker. <laughs> he was a... One sentence, two sentences, and you're off the stage. That's it. And you're going to go have lunch afterwards, and you'll be cracking up, cracking jokes, and drinking your water and, you know, having your chicken sandwich or whatever. That's it. That's what we do in life, right? What is our life? Just summarize down to a couple sentences. Not even a Wikipedia entry. Most of us, some people get even, some people are in Wikipedia. Not me. That's Okay. But here's David's life summarized to a sentence. He served his own generation by the will of God. Boom. Period. End of story. He fell asleep. That's a good way to live, though. That's all we can ultimately do. I love that. Can we say it with me? It says, Acts 13, 24, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on his sleep. So we have, we live in, in this generation. Let's do the will of God. Are my works for the glory of God? Are they in the will of God? And are, by, are they by the power of the Spirit of God? Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So walk in faith, beloved. Walk in the Spirit, beloved. Mourn over sin when you commit sins against God. Thirst for righteousness every day of your life. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And as you pray, don't just pray, but pray in the Spirit. And when you sing, don't just sing, but sing in the Spirit. And as you work, don't just work, but work with your heart to the Lord in the Spirit by the will of God, for the glory of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So we need to prepare to stand on the scale of God's perfect justice. Make sure that you have with you the gift of God's salvation, his righteousness, and then do all for the glory of God. Do it in the will of God and do it by the power of the Spirit of God. Let's stand together and let's pray as we close. And we will sing as well. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let's pray, beloved. Father in heaven, please work in our midst. If there's anyone under the sound of my voice, even this moment, who is not saved, that they will call upon you for salvation. And if you're not saved, if you get on that scale of God's judgment, there will be no hope for you. But there's hope today for you. The hope is in Jesus Christ, in the power of his gospel. If you're not saved, whether on Zoom or here, call upon the name of the Lord. Pray a prayer from your heart. 
Because it says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God had raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So call out from the Lord, uh, to the Lord from your heart, something like this. Dear Lord God of heaven, I am a sinner. I ask for your mercy. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He was buried. And he rose again. And now I call upon you today, Lord Jesus. I don't want to stand before the Father in my own righteousness because I have none. All my righteousness are like filthy rags. But I want the righteousness of Christ. I want to stand in the love of Christ and the mercy and grace of Jesus. So I trust you, Lord. Come into my heart and save me. And now help me to live for you. To live for your glory, to do your will, to walk in your spirit. Help me, God, with all power and strength. And for those of us who are saved, let us just check our labors today. Check our actions so that you can receive a reward on that great day. There's a, you don't lose your reward. I don't want to lose my reward, and I don't want you to lose yours. And I know you don't want to lose your reward if you're saved. Live for the glory of God. Make great the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in all that you do. Do it for His glory. And do it in His will. And do it by His Spirit. Father, please work. In our midst, thank you, God, for each one here today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.